Welcome back to Leaders of Color. On today's episode, we are joined by Claire Andalini. Claire earned her bachelor's in medical sciences, followed by a diploma in computer science at Western University. She is a current second-year medical student at Western who is passionate about women's health, providing culturally competent resources, and using her web development skills to provide inclusive educational platforms. After completing her Bachelor of Medical Sciences, Delaney entered the MD program at Western University, where she is now a second-year student. Being passionate about refugee health, pediatric medicine, and advocating for health equity, she hopes to employ these interests to improve health experiences for women across Canada. So welcome to both of you co-founders of an incredible organization that I'm looking forward to hearing about. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be here today. Yes, super excited to chat with you today. So I was just sharing that today for folks who are listening, it's April 19th when we're recording this and the federal budget was supposed to come out about three minutes ago. I have not checked yet. If it has come out, we'll see if by the end of the day we have an election or not at the federal level, but that's what's on my mind right now. How have you folks been reacting to both the pandemic? I know if you're in Ontario, for example, it's been a mess the past 48, 72 hours and very just crazy, crazy, crazy. How are you folks coping and handling it, especially as medical students? I think the only way to describe it is kind of chaos. Um, There's been a few moments of peace and I've really been trying to kind of hold on to and really embrace those moments of peace. But I think there's been kind of a lot of like chaos, both in just like complete like social life, family life, and then even for school as well as we've transitioned to mainly virtual learning. Yeah, and I I would have to definitely agree a lot of confusion, a lot of anger. And I, I think for us as medical students, having some clinical learning skills and not being able to know if they're actually going to happen in person or not is also pretty stressful. But given everything that's happening, I I think both Delini and I were still very, you know, privileged to be able to do what we do. And my heart really goes out for, you know, those of people who are in our province and really struggling with the recent lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's just been, I I really don't know how to describe it other than like heartbreaking. (laughs) And now I've seen that they're doing like employers are providing letters for people so that if the cops stop you, you have a letter. And I'm just like, wow, this is the kind of systems that my parents ran away from in apartheid South Africa. But okay, here we are. <laughs> so hopefully everyone finds some safety, I think, is the, the main goal. But not getting too much into the, the pandemic itself, but wanting to focus on your work and the work that you've been doing. Can you tell us a little bit about the BIPOC Women's Health Network and, and what organizationally you folks have been doing? Sure, I can start off. So the BIPOC Women's Health Network, it's a national network of medical students and allied health professionals coming from across six provinces. So it truly spans across Canada. And it was founded by myself, Claire, and our colleague, Brintha, who unfortunately can be here on this podcast episode today in the summer of 2020. And our mission at BIPOC Women's Health Network is twofold. So one, kind of acting at the one end by improving the healthcare experiences of racialized and Indigenous women while also acting at the ground level and advocating for changes to medical education to implement change from the ground up. So specifically, like we, what we want to do is provide healthcare resources and information that is culturally sensitive, it's anti-oppressive, multilingual, feminist, and pro-choice. And truly, like we think that these factors, they're really crucial to addressing the healthcare disparities that are faced by BIPOC women 
and also empowering BIPOC women to take control of their health. So I think in terms of our overall big mission, we have kind of a three-pronged approach in how we approach our services. So first, we have an online centralized resource hub through our website and social media. We also create educational resources for both patients and medical learners. And we also have community initiatives where we partner with BIPOC leaders and existing organizations that are already doing such amazing work in this space and help to uh, create more culturally sensitive initiatives and, uh, for patients. That's amazing. What motivated you to get into this work? I know you're both obviously medical students, but was it based on your own experience in the medical system or where did you see a need that you wanted to fill? Yeah, so this really came out from this summer project that we were working on. So we were really trying to look at the way that medical education centers the voices of BIPOC women and how they teach about their bodies and how their healthcare experiences are contextualized in the Canadian healthcare system. And we couldn't really get very far with it because one of the things that we realized is actually there's a huge lack of race-based data collection in Canada in all sectors, but especially in healthcare. And when you don't have that data and statistics, it's very difficult to make a case for the existence of certain inequities that exist. And even though we know they exist anecdotally through our own work and through work on the front lines as medical students and through those of residents and physicians, it's hard to prove that case on paper. So from speaking to other community organizations and leaders who have been working in these spaces, it was apparent to a lot of BIPOC folks that there is kind of a need for an organization, a kind of pan-Canadian organization that addresses these inequities for BIPOC women. So just to go back to what you were talking about around data collection, I think that's a point that a lot of folks across sectors are, are having challenges with, is that people don't collect race-based data in Canada, and we want to, to an extent, but there also exists this real hesitancy and scare from racialized communities that this data is going to be used or rather misused and harm them disproportionately in the ways that we've been harmed by by so many other things. And I know a lot of people have done a lot of community organizing work in demonstrating how this is about sustainability and encouraging folks that the data can be modeled in a way that is safe and protected and not meant to be exploited in. And I wonder if you folks have had any experience in challenging those narratives within the medical field at all. Yeah, I think that's a very valid and interesting and important point that you bring up. And especially working in the space, like you mentioned, there's this kind of historic mistrust of racialized communities and the healthcare system, right? So this kind of historic abuse of of fear of being misdiagnosed or exploited or receiving culturally incompetent care or this history of inappropriate medical practices that have been forced upon certain populations is definitely very real. And I I think it's very important moving forwards that we are able to implement the appropriate measures to make sure that the data is collected appropriately and protected. And it's being used to portray communities in a way that's beneficial to these communities and not exploitative or harmful to their narratives in any way. And I think that what's also very important to consider is that currently what happens a lot in healthcare is that members of marginalized and racialized communities, they're often forced to advocate for themselves, right? Put yourself in the shoes, if you're not, of someone who is a racialized person who might have 
cultural barriers, language barriers. Maybe you're from the LGBTQ2 plus community. When you walk into a healthcare appointment or you walk into some kind of institution, you're kind of situated in this position where you don't have necessarily the tools or the knowledge or the platform to advocate for yourselves and to stand up for your needs. So I think as future physicians ourselves, but also as researchers and those who work in healthcare policy or those who gather data or interpret data, it's kind of also up to us to, you know, fill this gap, bridge this disparity, and to engage this population so that we can help them in advocating for themselves in a way that is beneficial to their narrative Mm -hmm. and the abuse that these communities have experienced, but not to necessarily skew data or skew information in a way for your own personal benefit. Mm -hmm. To quickly add on to that, I think in terms of data collection, it's also important that you are including the people in the data collection, you know, they have a voice, you allow that voice at that table, and you amplify and support it. And so including people with lived experience and from these communities, I think that, you know, it's that term that nothing about us without us, you know, And I think that's also a really important part that we really have to centralize as we, you know, advocate for and carry on with race-based data collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of nothing about us without us, I think, is is super prevalent to a lot of communities that have been marginalized or that have been sacrificed for sort of the the greater good of white people, which which is a really important point. And I wonder if there's a way in which we can incorporate racialized communities on mass, but also like individual communities that are being impacted in the data collection process in a way where they see the results of what that is, right? So you collect the data and you find out whatever your results are, and then those results are provided back to the community, right? And, and focused on community-centered approaches. And if that is the way we need to do this, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to, to the medical field. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's what's so important about having representation and having a voice at that table. So you're able to communicate to the community, but also represent views from the community in an appropriate way. Yeah, for sure. And also whose voice is at the table from your community, I think is something I'm laughing because I've just had this exact conversation where people we're talking about representation and having a seat at the table, but then who gets to sit at the table? And what does that person bring to the table mm-hmm. as the representative sort of of their community? And all of the sort of lateral violence that can come about with that is just another another challenge, I think, that, that a lot of us Yeah, face. for sure. It's a very complex issue. Mm-hmm. And, and as I've raised this particular challenge, I wonder if there are any challenges that you folks have faced in this work. I'm sure that there have been. But anything particular as you've experienced this pandemic or, or just challenges that you faced in creating this organization and the work that you're doing to begin with? So one of the main challenges that, you know, we're, we try to actively remind ourselves about is, I mean, we're termed the BIPOC Women's Health Network. And I think also recently, there's, you know, you hear the word, uh, the term BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, People of Color being used a lot. And it's really easy to kind of group BIPOC people under one umbrella. And there are shared experiences of oppression, but there's also a lot of nuances in how that oppression manifests. And we really want to make sure that we're not kind of grouping and lumping different communities together. And it's really important to kind of uh, realize that different communities, different individuals, they have different needs. And we really have to recognize these needs in order to better serve these populations. And I think that's a challenge that we've definitely faced, that when we're creating initiatives and creating resources, 
we want to actively be aware and, you know, question which community um, are these interventions and services being provided to? And is this specifically targeted to it? And are we is our work specific to that community? And does it help to empower that specific community? So I think that's one challenge. I think I'm not sure, Claire, if you also want to reflect on that as well. I think you pose a great point about facing new challenges during a pandemic. And that definitely holds true for us. So having to do all of our work on a virtual platform is definitely difficult because it almost feels like you've got these other barriers you have to go through. It's now via email, via Zoom, and even working on, let's say, a consistent document or toolkit or project together requires a lot more collaboration and navigating in that sense. So I think that's kind of more of a process-based barrier for us, if you will. And I think Delini brings up a great point about kind of the, the bigger challenge that we face as an organization. How can we even serve up to the entire name BIPOC, right? We have to be able to engage leaders and community members from those communities and recognize our own weaknesses in not being able to, for example, represent all communities because we don't have those lived experiences, but we have to engage those who actually do. Yeah, I think that's really key with this idea that like people use the framework of, of BIPOC, obviously, and, and I do too. But that racialized communities on mass are not a monolith, right? Mm -hmm. And that we have different forms of oppression and systemic barriers that impact us medically and economically, socially, all those kind of things, politically, in a way that can be detrimental at differing degrees to different ethnic groups or different racialized groups. And being able to address that in a way that is holistic and and approachable and culturally competent is is really, really important. So I think that's a great point that you've raised. I'm curious if you've had any experiences of seeing these disproportionate impacts in real life or in the work that you're doing, and what it looks like to be able to challenge this monolith of all racialized communities are, are dealing with the same things and be able to really focus in on what is affecting specific communities. Yeah, I think as future healthcare providers, and I'll try to approach it from this lens because I feel like that's where I can speak on most appropriately. I think when you're serving these groups, you have to kind of approach it from a patient-centered view rather than viewing even a specific population as a whole or assuming a one-size-fits-all approach will work. And I, I think from our experiences, the best thing you can do is ask. When you have a patient or a client from a different background, sometimes the best thing you can do is ask, how can I help you? How can I provide support? And so on and so forth. Some individuals might need extra help getting access to quality foods. Some might not. Some might have language barriers. Some might have barriers seeing healthcare providers because they, they want to see a female provider or they want to bring their entire families with them or they have difficulties traveling down from a rural community. And, and all of this can vary. So I think it's not just enough to know the statistics and the health disparities and make an assumption every time a person from that ethnic background walks into your office or you meet them in real life. But to take the time to know the person who does walk in and assist them the best way that you can. Yeah, and I think all of that kind of ties back into the term of intersectionality. Like every single person holds different identities that come together and they intersect. 
to create different forms of privilege, but also different forms of oppression that they face and different barriers in terms of getting the adequate care that they need. And I know, I think one way that I've seen that come to play, like, um, for example, in the work that we've been doing through the BIPOC Women's Health Network is a recent project where we were trying to create a contraception toolkit. So in kind of talking to people and learning about the barriers that different individuals face in contraception, we realized how many kind of unique, but then also intersecting barriers there are. So whether you are an immigrant or a newcomer, potentially, as Claire mentioned previously, there may be language barriers that you face. Or maybe there may be financial barriers if you don't have insurance coverage to access contraception. But then we also released um, a set of infographics talking about accessing contraception as a transmasculine individual. And so I think that these different identities that each person holds, I think they also come together to create unique barriers. And as Claire said, I think the best way is what to take that patient-centered approach and uh, ask your patients what's their social situation or their financial situation, and what are their specific barriers that they face. And so you can provide the best possible care for them. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you're making. Like, we really need to have customized, I think is the word that comes to mind for me, care for multiple people across multiple generations, multiple racial groups, ethnic groups, whatever have you. And that intersectionality plays such a key role in that. And the the labor that has gone into creating intersectionality as something that can be a framework that we apply to different sectors. The labor done by Black women to, to push that forward is so yeah. important, I think, to acknowledge in, when we're having these conversations. Sure. We've talked a lot about the challenges you faced. I know there's a lot of them. And just wanted to briefly touch on what that's like during the pandemic. And so you mentioned like this pivot to online has been difficult. And I imagine, I know you're not, you're not officially doctors just yet, but you're still in medical school. But even thinking of the medical field and like, one, how much more accessible it's been for a lot of people to like, meet with their doctor virtually and not have to face barriers to entry to like go to a doctor's office, for example, for something like a prescription renewal, versus not being able necessarily all the time to physically see a doctor when you are sick and when you when you really need that physical care to be checked out and looked over. Has that been something that you've seen shift in the past year and a half now, I guess, that we've been in this pandemic? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, with online care, like you mentioned, there brings a lot of reductions to these barriers because you don't have to face traveling. You don't have to worry about getting a bus ticket. You don't have to worry about where it is that you live. You know, you can order birth control online. That's the beauty of being able to live in such a connected society virtually. But I think there's also a lot of new problems that it brings. For example, for a lot of women, your, you know, let's your yearly checkup or your annual, you know, whatever it might be, pap smear mammogram. That's that's an opportunity for you to go into a doctor's office and kind of establish a connection, a relationship and establish a point of care contact if there is ever something else going in your life. For example, for survivors of intimate partner violence, being able to have that point of care and that point of connection is something that's able to bring you more support. And it's someone that you're able to see periodically to check in and to kind of have that outside support and some kind of connection, whether it's to a legal system or a support system or to a shelter, whatever it might be. And I think a lot of that is lacking during online care. You can't necessarily provide that, or you might not be open to speaking about these issues going on at home when you are physically at home on the phone. 
There's certain things that you can't speak up about because let's say your partner or those in your family are nearby. Whereas if you go into a family doctor's office, there's always ways to, for example, see the physician alone. And I think that's just one of the examples of the disadvantages to online care. And I can think of many, many others. And I think it's also really important to consider that the populations that are affected by this who are are not able to see their providers in person are those who are typically marginalized or racialized or undergoing, let's say, intimate partner abuse. And it it really, you know, saddens my heart to, to know how just one more of the ways that COVID has affected marginalized communities. But I, I really don't think that a lot of physicians and a lot of healthcare providers think that, you know, online healthcare is the way to go. It's a new future. And I definitely see that happening. I think it can alleviate a lot of barriers and burdens for the healthcare system. But I think there's also something really important about being able to see your physician in person and get that support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and being able to sort of see the different impacts that are happening to different people, again, is like this customized way of making sure we have a holistic approach towards medicine and Mm -hmm. and care, which I think is really critical. I'm wondering what some of the most fulfilling pieces of your work are. I know there are a lot of challenges as we've talked about, and some of them more prevalent than others because we're in this midst of of trial and, and tribulation right now as a as a quote unquote country, but also as a global society. But there's a reason why you keep doing this work, right? And there's something that keeps pushing you and motivating you. And I'd love to hear what it is. Has it been a particular success story that you've noticed very distinct change happen? or something else that has fulfilled your desire to keep pushing through those challenges. I'll speak to one of our most recent um, exciting milestones that we just hit. So over the past few months, we've been working on creating a more culturally inclusive prenatal and postpartum care kits. And this past week, we were actually able to drop it off. So it was a project where we partnered with Women's Health and Women's Hands, which is a clinic in Toronto that is dedicated to providing culturally safe care to Black patients. And I think they're, in fact, like, the only community health center specific for racialized women's health in all of North America, in fact. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, so it was really exciting. And Dr. Notisha Masakoy, who's the founder of Women's Health and Women's Hands, is actually one of our mentors. So we're really excited to have you know connected with her and connected with women's health. Yeah, so we've, we've been working with them over the past few months to create these kits. And these prenatal and postpartum care kits would be targeted to low-income Black pregnant patients. And they contain tangible items to foster a healthy pregnancy. So things like prenatal vitamins, disposable underwear, grocery gift cards, and other items that may otherwise be financially inaccessible for some of these patients. And then along with each of the kits, we also created a culturally inclusive information guide. Because I think a lot of the information in terms of the prenatal and postpartum journey really is centered around cis white women. And we want to make sure that the information provided you know, if we're talking about the prenatal nutrition guide, you know, like, how can you get this nutrition that you need for a healthy pregnancy, but in the foods that you eat, you know, and so we yeah, we created this guide, and we we dropped off these kits this past week. So I think that was really exciting for all of us and our team. And we have a dedicated team that worked on the guides and the kits. And it was really exciting to be able to kind of see this to fulfillment. But then also to be able to share this with our community. So the guide is up now up on our website. And we've had a lot of other community health clinics, 
along with healthcare professionals and other allied health people reaching out, providing a lot of positive feedback for the initiative, as well as like how truly needed this information guide is. And so I think that was, for me, one of the highlights of this past year. Yeah, for sure. And it was definitely one of my highlights as well. I think, you know, adding back onto the barriers that we faced is doing all of this online, you kind of lose that connection that you're actually able to have with people. So building these tangible kits where we put in items like prenatal vitamins, disposable underwear for after giving birth, baby wipes, diapers, and etc., and grocery gift cards, putting those tangible items and printing out this tangible guide and being able to actually deliver it to the clinic where I see that patients will actually receive these items physically is just really nice to see and really nice to know that we accomplished during this time of virtual world. Yeah, congratulations. That's amazing that you've been able to have such a tangible impact and provide like direct support to people in that Mm -hmm. way. I think there's so much around, particularly, again, disproportionately for Black women and even Indigenous women, I believe, in Canada, but just around pregnancy in general. Mm -hmm. I think there's so many, like, I'm 25 now and I learn every day something new that my mom's like, oh, I forgot that that happened to me three times. I'm like, wow, the things that they don't teach us, right? Or I see, like, I I saw a tweet the other day about a, a woman who, she didn't get any stretch marks, but her entire belly was super, super melanated compared to the rest of her body as a result of being pregnant and apparently like it goes away after a few months but that's something that dark-skinned women in particular deal with and I was like wow that is information that was never provided to me ever for sure and and that's some of the things that we try to address in this kit right for example not all women have the privilege of being able to take maternity leave and being able to breastfeed your kids right after. So what do you do mm-hmm. in that situation? You know, how, how can you fulfill your prenatal vitamins and prenatal nutrition requirements if you are receiving your food from a food bank? We try to address all mm-hmm. of those issues that patients actually face rather than just this kind of you know, top level, this is what you should do. We try to, you know, bridge these gaps and actually meet patients where they actually are, because that's how you're actually going to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a great outlook to have in terms of doing community work like this, like being able to address inequalities very specifically and and like targeted in a way is so critical. And, And so I definitely think that's a great accomplishment that you folks have had. And I hope that it was well received because it sounds like it was much needed. Thank you so much. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Do you you know about how many kits you you sent out again? Yeah, uh, so we submitted 50 kits and we're currently in the process of um, creating a few more kits. And then we've already received a few people that are actually interested throughout Canada in also partnering with us and creating these specific guides for their clinics and their patient population as well. Oh, wonderful. That's amazing. That's exactly how you make it sustainable and grow this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're really excited. And it's also timely because this past week is actually Black Maternal Health Week. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reflections this week on, yeah, like you said, how Black women face so much disparities in terms of maternal health. And it truly is like a Black maternal health crisis that we're seeing. And the COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated these disparities, if anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think being able to Like in Canada, I feel like we don't because we don't collect that data again so often that we refuse to acknowledge the disparities that are happening. And so to see women of color in particular step up and be like, this is what's happening in our communities and this is why we need to fix it is really credible, I think, to the work that you're doing and also like the holistic approach to your 
work and your life as committed to being in this medical field. So yeah, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. So we want to share with folks some of the other opportunities that you might have upcoming. Are there ways for people to either check out your website, get involved with some of the projects that you're working on, either by sponsoring things, donating, just sharing? What do you have available for folks to get involved with? Yeah, absolutely. So feel free to follow us on Instagram at BIPOCWHN or on Twitter at BIPOCWHN. Again, on these platforms, we post a lot of really great informative articles and infographics, not only for healthcare trainees, but also for patients to learn more about either how you can provide more culturally competent care or receive more culturally competent care. On our website, which is BIPOCWomensHealth.com, we also host more articles, both for medical learners and for patients on advocating for their care and the different disparities that BIPOC women face in Canada. And on our website, you can also check out some of our other features, including podcasts and articles. And you can also, if you're interested in collaborating with us as an organization, we have a little form that you can fill out. Or if you're looking into joining our team as a allied health learner or allied health professional, you can also apply through our website. And we will be recruiting for new team members in August. So look forward to that. Amazing. Thank you both so much for joining us. Before I let you go, I want to invite you to participate in our closing segment that we do after every episode that I like to call How I Would End Racism, which is my sort of way of using humor to not fall to the pains of the earth, I guess. Because as young leaders of color, we are constantly trying to end racism or at least reduce the harm that it causes to both ourselves as well as our communities while we actually do something tangible to, to navigate it or end it. But imagine if we could do so instantly. What is your best pitch for how you would end racism if you could? Yeah, I think it's definitely a very unique question and, and lighthearted at that. I, I think for us both, it's, it's a heavy topic, right? And it's a very heavy topic for a lot of people. And I think just for us, we don't want to kind of, you know, be like Kendall Jenner and try to solve the entire crisis with a, kind of <laughs> with a Pepsi, Pepsi bottle, bottle right? <laughs> and, and I think there's, there's no simple solution and no simple quote unquote way to end racism. It's because it's, it's not that trivial of an issue, right? And as you mentioned, it really underlies every aspect of our society because of the way that our society was built the way that our you know, constitution and the majority of our legislation and our healthcare system was built by able-bodied cis white men. And so ending that isn't really easy. And I think personally, you know, as a future healthcare provider, we're always looking for a solution, an easy pill, a medication, a vaccine mm-hmm. that answers all of our problems. But you know, unfortunately, racism is so systemically ingrained, it's going to require much more of a collective force to change. And I I think it's it's a heavy topic and it's a hard question. And I, I really appreciate the humor. And I think at the end of the day, if it were up to me, what I would do is I would just restart and build a planet just full of puppies. And that would be my solution. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I have to say, I think that's the only way I see it going too. I think Claire brought up a lot of points and I think she kind of summarized exactly how I feel about the situation too. But I think a world full of puppies and babies is, that's that's the way to go. That sounds great to me. I'm always, my favorite one for me personally is always the Thanos snap. 
Uh, I would love to snap my fingers and just erase white supremacists from the earth. I think that would resolve a lot of my problems personally. <laughs> but yes, I, I do agree that there is much more to it than than the wishfulness of of being able to just end it with a snap of your although hand. Although a planet full of puppies would be pretty great. It would just be me and just all puppies. There you go. Honestly, that what sounds kind of a little love? selfish. I'd like to be included <laughs> on this planet as well, surrounded by puppy love. <laughs> but are we? How diverse are you going with the puppies? Are you Ooh. being like, I want all golden retrievers, or what's what's? Oh, that's going to be a difficult question because then we're bringing it back, right? And then you've got, <laughs> and then and then I'm going to have to make a new new planet full of kittens, and then you're just going to have to go in circles. There you go. I, I'm going to take your idea and I'm going to use pit bulls and we're going to be the ostracized planet of people. Oh, the pit bull po- They're so cute, pit bulls. They're adorable. They're adorable. Yeah. If anything, I'll yeah. go with yellow labs because I own a yellow lab myself. They're crazy about oh, food. No. They're gr- they're goofy and they're just really derpy. And I just, I, I would, <laughs> I would live and I would die for a planet full of just little baby Labradors. There we go. We're giving the planet over to the dogs and they will literally save it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you folks so much for joining us. It was lovely to end on such a a light note, I think. But in all seriousness, the work that you're doing is is phenomenal. And I'm so excited to see what comes next as you challenge these narratives, but also like very clear systemic barriers that exist for so many of our communities and for ourselves as a, a woman of color who will benefit from the work that you're doing. So yeah, wonderful to talk to you and, and best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Teresha. 